Please stand with me as we uh, read God's Word today. Bruce is going to be uh, starting a new series uh, called Assurance, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13, that's seven, uh, page 710 in your pew Bible, if you, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you or on your device. Again, it's uh, 1 John 5, 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. We thank you so much that you sent him to die for our sins, to pay the price that we could never pay, to pay the debt that we can never pay. And God, help us to really, truly place our faith and trust in him and to rest in the assurance that Jesus is ours and we are his and that his, his death and his, his blood covers our sins, but God, that he didn't stay dead, he rose again and that he is our king eternal. God, just help us to love you with our whole heart, our mind and soul and to serve you with all our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I am super, super excited this morning. I hope you are as well. The reason I'm super excited is because we're getting ready to start a new summer series. Uh, in the book of 1 John, we're going to be traveling, journeying through this little book at the end of your Bibles here in the New Testament, a series called assurance and uh, I'm excited that you're here to kick it off with us in fact this series is starting today Memorial Day weekend and it will end on Labor Day weekend so we got these two weekends here that are bookending this series here through first John assurance one of the reasons I really enjoyed this book uh, called first John is because it's all about assurance hence the name of the series assurance John answers this simple question how can you know for sure that you have eternal life? Perhaps you've wondered that, perhaps you've thought that, perhaps you've even asked that question in your own heart of hearts. How can I know for sure that I have eternal life in Jesus Christ? Because when you come to the end of your life, the only thing that matters is are you saved or are you lost? Consider the following familiar but tragic story. The year was 1912, and all of Britain was buzzing with the talk of the Titanic, which you are familiar with, uh, the largest ship ever, ever built up until then. It was the crown jewel of Britain's White Star Line. The Titanic was the most impressive ocean liner to sell the seas. It was the largest moving object ever created. In fact, she was billed as the eighth wonder of the world and was said to be the quote unsinkable ship but tragically sink is all she ever did on her faithful maiden voyage the titanic left south hampton england carrying 1312 passengers plus a crew and service staff of 914 heading for new york city as she crossed the North Atlantic, the Titanic received a warning at 9.40 p.m. on April 14th about much heavy packed ice and a great number of icebergs. 
But wireless operator Jack Phillips placed the warning underneath a paperweight and continued sending personal message, messages for the passengers. Five more warnings were received. And five more warnings were discarded. The last one because no one wanted to awaken the captain. But at 11.40 p.m., Frederick Fleet, sitting lookout in the crow's nest, spotted an iceberg 500 yards away and called the bridge. But it was too late. The Titanic struck a skyscraper-sized ice iceberg, ripping a 15-foot gash along the ship's right side, resulting in the flooding of the six of the, her 16 watertight compartments. At 12.45 a.m., the first lifeboat was lowered into the chilly waters below, half empty. Others tried to seek safety, but for most, it was too late. Some jumped into the water and tried to swim, but hypothermia set in and they sank into a watery grave. Others stayed on board the ship, climbing to the highest point, but they also drowned in the chilly Atlantic waters. In all, only 706 people were saved. When news was telegraphed ahead to New York City, thousands of people gathered outside the White Star Shipping Line office to await the grim news. Who had been rescued? Who had perished? On that day, it mattered not whether one had first class, second class, or third class accommodation. It mattered not if one had, the, had been the captain of the ship or if you were a crew member. When they posted the report next to each name, all that mattered was saved or lost. In fact, you see a, a replica of the Boston Globe newspaper. They have the, the actual statistics. They're wrong. Later, they found out, and we now know what, how many people were saved, 706 lives. This tragedy of yesteryear serves as a grim reminder of a far greater truth for us here this morning. Like the Titanic, this world is sinking after hitting a massive iceberg of sin. And there is only one hope of escaping eternal death and separation from God. And that is for us for each of us personally, to respond to the saving grace of God and to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest thing in all the world is to have eternal life. And the second is to know for sure that you have eternal life. The good news is God wants you to be absolutely sure that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not an issue that God wants clouding your mind. Rather, it is something that He desires to be very clear in our hearts. In fact, 1 John was written to help us to know for sure that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, since we're going to spend the summer in 1 John, let's start with a little background to this little book. And I say, quote, little about 1 John. After all, it's only five chapters long. 1 John, in total, only has 105 verses. And so it's a rather little book, yet it is a very powerful book in its message. It is still as practical and relevant today as when it was first written. Now, Whenever you're, we're going through a book of the Bible like this, 1 John, I always think it's a great idea uh, for as many people as possible. It would be great if everyone here would take up this challenge, and that is to read through the book. 
and to read through it at least once. So I put this insert in your bulletins here, and I want to encourage you to go through this reading plan of 1 John. And it's a five-week reading plan. The reason it's five weeks is because it's five days of reading each week, and basically we divide the book up into uh, one chapter a day in which you can read through all of 1 John in one week. And having go through it five weeks, you will have read through the, the book five times. And I tell you, if you read through the book of 1 John five times, you will begin to get a great feel and a great sense about what 1 John is all about. God will use that to speak to you and confirm in your own heart, do I have eternal life or do I not? 1 John is all about that. Now, with that in mind, here's a little bit of background to the book. The author, who wrote it? Well, that's rather easy to know. The Apostle John wrote the epistles of John. Uh, we call them epistles or letters, sometimes books. There's actually three of them. This is 1 John. We have 2 John, 3 John. And so John is the author of these three epistles, as well as the Gospel of John, which is part of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he also is the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Who was John? John, as most of you may know, was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. John, at this time of writing, he's a very old man. In fact, he's probably around 90 years old when he wrote 1 John, and he is the last surviving member of the original 12 disciples. All the other disciples have long been martyred for their faith in Jesus, and he's the only one left, and this is who is the author of this little book. Now, who's he writing to? The audience. Look at it. 1 John was written most likely to several churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, between A.D. 80 and 95. These churches more than likely were started by John. And now they were being infiltrated with false teachers and false teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this was causing a lot of the Christians in these churches to doubt their salvation, to doubt whether or not they have eternal life. And so John writes this letter to confront the lies of these false teachers who were denying the truth about Jesus. They were denying his deity, but more than that, they were denying the humanity of Jesus, that he incarnated, that he came in the flesh. And so John writes to defend his churches, and his flock from these wolves who have come in to kill and destroy with their false teaching. And John does this, it's interesting, he does it as both an apostle and as a pastor. You say, why is that significant? Well, as an apostle, get this, John writes with great authority here in this book. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. After all, he followed Jesus for three years. He's an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, and so he knows what he's talking about. He heard Jesus teaching. He saw Jesus die on the cross. He saw Jesus after he rose again. And so he writes as an apostle, and he writes with great authority in confronting the false teachers with their false teaching. But he also, he writes with great affection as a pastor. And this is the aspect I love about John here. He is like a, a loving father writing to his children. 
As you read through this book, you can almost feel the love that John has for these believers. In fact, John, throughout the book, he calls them his little children or his beloved children. And that is a term of endearment that he's given to his flock. And so, that is his audience of who he's writing to. But what's his purpose? Why is he taking time to write this letter to these churches here? We'll notice the purpose is twofold. One is to help those who truly believe in Jesus Christ to gain assurance of their salvation. Many people, even today, just like in John's day, wrestle with the issue of the assurance of their salvation. Am I really saved or am I not? They want to know, do I have eternal life? Will I go to heaven when I die? And how can I know for sure? How can I be certain about that? Listen, if you're not sure about your salvation, if you've ever had questions like that, if you've ever had doubts and even maybe now in the present, this series is for you. But there's also a second purpose. John also writes to expose some people in the church. To expose those who are, quote, religious but lost. And awaken them to their unsaved condition so that they may truly know Jesus Christ. So that they may come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and know for sure that they have eternal life. 1 John gives a challenge then. He writes with great authority, but he writes with great affection when he gives this challenge as a wake-up call to people who think they are saved, but they give no evidence of their salvation. And so John wrote this book to help people to discern if they have saving faith or if all they have is superficial faith. To help people determine if they are a true believer in Jesus Christ, or if they are just make-believers in the church. So here's my great concern as we go through 1 John this summer. And I hope you hear my heart when I say this. There, listen to me, there is nothing, there is nothing more deceiving, more dangerous than going through life without assurance of your salvation. Nothing more defeating, I should say. Nothing more defeating. And then there's nothing more deceiving than going through life with false assurance of your salvation. So I said that wrong the first time, so let me say it again so you're, there's no mistake here. There's nothing more defeating than going through life without assurance of your salvation. There's nothing more deceiving or more dangerous than going through life with a false assurance of your salvation. So please know that throughout this series that I speak with great authority, not like John, but I speak with great authority from God's Word. So what I share with you is is we are looking at the Word of God. We are looking at what God says through the Apostle John here. And that is the authority that we base this series on, just as we do every time we teach and preach here at Glenwood. 
but I also speak with great affection as your pastor. My prayer is that God will use this series in the same way when John first wrote this book in the first century, and that is to help some of you to gain assurance of your salvation so that you may live with confidence in Jesus Christ, but also to challenge some of you to wake up to your unsaved condition so that you may come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, in a congregation this size, there are both believers and unbelievers here this morning. I cannot judge your hearts. God can, and you, through the Word of God, can begin to discern, and God can help you discern which are you. Am I a true believer, or am I a make-believer in Jesus Christ? The key verse of 1 John that explains this twofold purpose is found in the very last chapter of the book, chapter 5, in verse 13. Notice again what John writes. It's what Kevin read for us. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to, to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, don't miss the phrase there that you may know, because that is the key phrase. That's why John wrote this book, that you may know. He wants us to know something. With this in mind, I want to answer three questions, and that is, what can we know? Who can know it? And how can we know it? Notice the first question, what can you know? You can know for sure that you have eternal life. That's what you can know here this morning. God wants you to have a no-so salvation. He wants you to know for sure that you're saved and have eternal life. John writes, these things that I, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John does not say that you may hope, that you may guess, speculate, or wish that you have eternal life. John writes that you may know that you have this, that you have eternal life. In five chapters, John uses this little word, no, over 30 times. Why? Because John is telling us that you can know something. He's telling us that you can know for sure that you have eternal life. It's not a guessing game, in other words. John writes in 1 John 2, verse 25, and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. And John wants you to know if you have it or not. The good news is God wants you to know for sure that you have eternal life. Again, eternal life is not an issue that God wants clouding your mind with doubt, but rather it is something he wants to be clear in our hearts. Figuratively speaking, God doesn't want you to be this question mark all bent over in doubt with your head hung low about whether or not you are saved. Rather, God wants you to be an exclamation mark, standing with your head high, strengthened by a God-produced confidence in your faith in Him. I just, I, I love, Charles Spurgeon is, I love Charles Spurgeon. Uh, some of you may not know him. Great, great preacher in the 18th century in, in England. And in fact, you could go to the Spurgeon Library over here at Midwestern Seminary, and, and, and if you're a history buff, I encourage you to do it. But he once said this. It was, it's great. 
He once said that he was so sure of his salvation that he could grab onto a cornstalk, swing out over the fires of hell, look the devil in the face, and sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Now, we don't talk like that nowadays, but I, it's, it's just a great quote. Now, what can you know? You can know for sure that you have eternal life. So maybe we ought to ask the question, what is eternal life then? Well, salvation is possessing eternal life, and eternal life is receiving Jesus Christ. In other words, eternal life is Christ himself coming to live within us and giving us the very life that he possesses. John declares this two verses earlier in the same chapter, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. When he writes, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life, eternal life that is, he says, is in his son. So he who has the son, speaking of Jesus, has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Now don't miss this. John is saying Jesus is eternal life and therefore if you have Jesus, you have what? You have eternal life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. And yet, eternal life is so much more than just, get this, length of time. Yes, we are all grateful that everyone will live forever if they have eternal life in heaven. And if you don't, you will live forever in hell. But eternal life is much more than just the duration of one's life. It is also about the quality of life. Why? Because it's Christ living within me. And that radically changes me. Listen, Jesus takes up residence in our meaningless lives, and he gives us abundant life, according to John 10.10. 10. Jesus fills us with the fullness of his presence, and his power begins to radically change us as we abide in him day by day. In other words, our lives begin to show evidences of eternal life. Why? Because life change is always the result of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Moreover, yes, eternal life goes on forever and ever. As believers, our relationship with Christ will never end, not in this life nor in the next life. If we could lose our salvation after 10 years, then we would possess 10-year life. But that's not what John's talking about. He says we possess eternal life in Jesus Christ. And eternal life begins not when we die, but the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. Notice again what John writes in 11 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son, salvation has what? Life. Jesus, eternal life. In fact, it's interesting. You go back to the first chapter of 1 John. John, verses 1, 2, and 3. John there even calls Jesus the word of life and the eternal life. That's what he is. 
The verbs has and have are in the present tense. And this means right now, presently, is when eternal life begins. Eternal life is ours the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. Even death cannot stop eternal life. Eternal life begins now when we believe, and it endures forever throughout all the ages to come. So what can you know here this morning when you leave? And you go home this afternoon, or tomorrow you spend time with family and friends, and you have your cookout and you're talking, and you're like, man, I, don't, I just don't know what I'm going to do this week. I don't know what my job holds. I don't know what the future holds. And you're right, we don't. But there are some things we know for certain. John says we can know this. We can know without a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life. And this leads us to our second question. Well, who then can know this? Who can know? Oh, he's very specific on who can know. Those who believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's who can know. Go back to John 5. I should say 1 John. Verse 13, our key verse here. Look at it again. John says, these things have I written to you And now he defines who the you is. Who's the you? It's who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to to believe in the name of the Son of God. So who can know for sure that you have eternal life? Twice, John says, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. In the very first verse of the same chapter, John writes, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, assurance of salvation is for those who believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So, perhaps we ought to stop and ask this question. What does it mean to believe then? Because that's a key word in this key verse. Well, it means to respond with one's entire being to Jesus Christ. It means to put my faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for my salvation. In other words, saving faith is the abandonment of my life to Christ who died in my place. It's a decisive turning from sin and trusting Jesus to save me. It's a choice to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord or the leader of my life. And Paul says that is by grace through faith because it's a gift of God, not of our works, lest we should boast. Now, another question is, why is John emphasizing this? Why is John emphasizing that assurance, assurance of salvation, is for those who truly believe in Jesus Christ? In fact, you could phrase it this way. John is actually saying only those who believe in Jesus Christ can know for sure that they have eternal life. Now, why is John highlighting that? Why is he making that a point The reason John is making a distinction here is because there is a superficial faith 
that is not saving faith. And this has crept into the church that John writes to. And so there's this contrast being made in this book between superficial faith on one side and saving faith on the other side. And he is making a distinction between the two. Superficial faith, listen, it's always possible. It was possible in John's day. It, we're going to see it was possible in Jesus' day. And it is possible even in our day. It's possible that people attend church with faith that doesn't lead to salvation. It's the kind of faith that is a superficial faith. It is a bogus faith. It is a false faith. That's the picture we see even in Jesus' day. And John was there. He saw this with Jesus' day. John tells us, you go back to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and John tells us about how many people, they came up to Jesus claiming, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus, but all they believed in were the miracles. But, and so Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew they believed with a superficial faith. It wasn't saving faith. In other words, it's possible to believe in Jesus, profess that, but do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior because it is a false faith. This is the picture of faith that we now see in John's day, which is about 60, 70 years later after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. So he's writing to Christians who are second and third generation Christians. They did not see Jesus. They were not eyewitnesses of Jesus like John was. And so there's this group of people here within the church, involved in the church, and so everybody thought they were Christians because they were in the church and involved in the church. But then this group of people started denying the truth about Jesus. They started denying the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. They even started promoting a view of the gospel that was false, and they ended up leaving the church. John addresses this when he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. He says, little children, there's your term of affection. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, small a, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest or known that none of them were of us. <laughs> What's John saying here? Let me boil it down, real simple. John is saying that these people never had saving faith in Jesus Christ. If they had, they would have remained in the church. They never belonged to us. Yes, they claimed to follow Jesus, but they had a superficial faith that does not lead to salvation. And yes, this is the picture of faith that we see even in our day as well. So this letter is very practical, very relevant. 
There are people in the church today, there are people involved in the church today who only have a superficial faith. And you should have no assurance of salvation, of eternal life. And these people will be shocked one day to hear Jesus saying to them what he said in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If that's possible in Jesus' day, if that's possible in John's day, folks, that is still possible in our day. And if that's the case, then we need to ask the same question that the people in John's day were asking. Well, how do we know if we got the real thing? How do you know if you got saving faith that leads to eternal life? Listen, that's the question every one of us here ought to be asking right now. Young people, listen to, look at me. Everyone, you ought to be asking, how do I know that I have saving faith that leads to eternal life? You're in your 20s and 30s, you ought to be asking that. If you're in your 50s and 60s, approaching the end of your life, more than ever you ought to be asking that. Every one of us here ought to be asking that. That's why John wrote this little book, to show them how we can know, how we can be sure. So let's answer that question. Number three, how can you know that you have eternal life? You can know by examining yourself against God's written word. And that's the authority that we have, is the word of God. That is the mirror that we look into. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And we don't test ourselves and examine ourselves by what the world says, by what the culture says, by what our friends say, or whatever the case may be. We test ourselves against the authority of God's Word. And here, John 5, 13 He's very decisive on this. John says, these things I have written to you. These things refers to everything John has written in the book of 1 John. In other words, if you want to know for sure if you have eternal life, read the book of 1 John. That's why I'm encouraging you to read it through five times over the next five weeks. Because I promise you, God will begin to speak to you if you do this, and he will begin to help you discern whether or not you are truly a believer in Christ or whether you are a make-believer. We examine our lives against the Word of God. And John, what he does in this book is he begins to weave these tests throughout the book by which we may judge whether or not we have eternal life. 
The benefit of these tests is that they provide a, quote, foundation of assurance that we have eternal life. And what's interesting is these foundations of assurance may not be exactly what we tend to base our assurance on. What we could call there are false foundations of assurance and there are true foundations of assurance that we find in the book of 1 John. So what are some of the false foundations that we tend to base our salvation on, that we, that we have it? Well, let me go through these with you. Number one is a moral lifestyle. Listen, just because someone lives a good, honest life doesn't mean they're assured of eternal life. I hope you understand that. The reality is there's a lot of people in our world, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends, who are, quote, moral in the eyes of others, but because of our sinfulness, we still fall short of God's holiness. And so without the righteousness of Christ in our lives, without His righteousness covering us, we have absolutely no assurance of salvation, no matter how moral we may live. So a moral lifestyle is not the basis of our assurance of salvation. Number two, intellectual knowledge. Listen, you can know all the facts of the gospel and still not be saved and still not have assurance of salvation. You say, well, how, why do we know that? Well, even the devil believes in Jesus Christ. But not with saving faith that leads to salvation. James 2.19 tells us that. Do you realize some of the strongest testimonies in the Bible about Jesus come from demons? But no one would suggest that they are saved. Why? Because intellectual knowledge about Jesus Christ is not the only sole key to assurance of salvation. Yes, there are some things we have to know about the gospel. And we have to know the facts, and we're going to see that next Sunday. But intellectual knowledge is not the key to assurance of salvation. It's a false foundation. Number three, religious or ministry involvement. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul talks about people who have this, quote, form of godliness about them. But they deny its power. In other words, they deny its reality in their lives. And so their religion, their ministry involvement and activity, their life, it's basically empty. It's shallow. It's like cotton candy. Do you realize you can spend every Sunday of your life attending church, and still not have assurance of salvation? And nor should you have it based on church attendance or ministry activity apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. Number four is a guilty conscience. Sometimes people say, well, I feel bad when I do wrong. That must mean I have assurance of salvation, and I would simply say to you, big deal, a lot of people feel bad when they do wrong. Most of the time they feel bad because they got caught. We live in a guilt-ridden culture that is consumed with how to overcome all the guilt that we feel, which is why so many people intoxicate or medicate as a way to deal with that guilt. 
Even the Christian culture has embraced this idea that, oh, I feel guilty, so I've got to do something to reform my life. And that's nothing more than a self-centered Christianity trying to overcome our guilt on our own by doing things on our own rather than trusting in Christ's work to overcome our guilt for us. Listen, remember Judas, one of the disciples, after he betrayed Jesus Christ? He felt so guilty about it. What did he go out and do? Hung himself. So feeling bad about your sin doesn't prove that you're saved. It just proves that you need forgiveness of Jesus Christ that is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just proves that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Number five is a past prayer. This is where people, where you ask people, well, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you have eternal life? And some people will say, well, I prayed a prayer. I remember where I was when I prayed that prayer. Please understand, I'm not saying that if you remember praying a prayer, that means you're not saved. However, I am saying this, that's not the basis of your assurance of salvation. Do you realize there are a, a lot of people who have prayed a prayer of, quote, salvation, and consequently think they're going to heaven because of that prayer who are tragically mistaken? In 2011, Barna study shows that 50% of Americans say they have prayed some kind of sinner's prayer even though half of them have no regular presence in any kind of church or have a lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from those outside the Christian faith. But when these same people hear that you need Jesus to be saved, they think, oh, been there, done that. I prayed the prayer and filled out the car. My grandma was there. She can vouch for me. So I'm good. But as one pastor writes, J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina, he says, and I quote, you're not saved because you pray some magical prayer. God saves us when we repent and believe the gospel. You can express repentance and faith in a prayer, but it is not the prayer itself that saves. It is repentance and belief behind the prayer that lays hold of salvation. It is possible to repent and believe without praying the prayer. And it's also possible to pray the prayer without repenting and believing. That's the picture in these false foundations of assurance that we just went through. Every one of them are things that you can do all you can do all these things apart from Jesus Christ. And what John shows us in this little book here, and what I want us to see, is that Christ and the gospel is at the very core of our assurance of salvation. So go ahead. Let me encourage you to throw out those false assurances, those false foundations, and put your assurance on these true foundations. Now, in each of these true foundations, there are two questions for you to think through and to help bring assurance of your salvation or perhaps even this morning to awaken you to the reality that you are not saved. 
Now, we'll go through these quickly because that's what the rest of this series will focus on. So notice the first foundation is the present truth of Christ in your life. The present truth of Christ in your life. And the first question is, am I believing in Christ alone for my salvation? Listen, if you do not believe in the person and work of Christ for your salvation, then you have no basis for assurance of salvation. The second question is, am I abiding in Christ alone as my salvation? It's interesting. In, through the book of 1 John, he weaves these, these themes that we're looking at right now all through the book. In fact, his book is it's not a linear process of logic that he takes us through. It's circular. And so he's, he's going like this through the whole book. Repeating himself over and over again with these themes and these tests, if you will. And one of them is, do I abide? Am I abiding in Christ alone as my salvation? Yes, we are saved based on what Christ did for us on the cross. However, the reality is Christ didn't do that for us and then just check out and leave us to live this Christian life all on our own. Instead, get this, do you realize he shares his life with us moment by moment, day by day? That's what the idea of abide is. And so assurance of salvation comes from sharing life with Jesus now, moment by moment, day by day. The second foundation is the present work of Christ in your life. And the question here is, am I obeying what Christ says? Am I obeying him? In fact, in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, well, John says he's a liar. A liar about what? That he knows for sure that he has eternal life. Now, let me just emphasize the truth here. Assurance of salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on Christ's performance in you and through you present work of Christ in your life is what empowers you to actually obey Christ's commands. That's not sinless perfection that he's after. Rather, it is a new direction in our lives. This new direction of your life, listen folks, that is evidence that you have eternal life. Again, what is repentance? We're going one way in life. A life of sin, a life of destruction, and repentance is I turn, and now I put my faith in Jesus Christ. A new direction, a new life in Christ. And this new direction, although we don't live it perfectly, anybody do that? I didn't think so. None of us do. So it's, the expectation is not holy perfection, sinless perfection, but it's a new direction. In other words, we ought to evaluate our present direction in life now. Where are you at in your journey with Jesus? How's that going for you? How are you living? Because that is evidence of eternal life. Listen, and what that also means, if you're disobeying God's commands in His Word, you will have little to no assurance of salvation. The second question is, am I loving like Christ loves? That is the theme he repeats all the time. Love for one another. Love for the brethren. Do I love one another? 
Now, we all know people who are hard to love. I talk to my boys about this all the time because they think each one is hard to love. And I just think, well, what about me and your mother? We love you guys. You're not the easiest to love. We all know people who are hard to love, and yet, get this, the love of God in us is what enables us to love them. So when you start to love people who are hard to love, and you think, whoa, man, that's definitely not me. Where did that come from? You're like, you know what? No, that is not you. It's the work of Christ enabling you to love like Christ loves. And you know what that is? When that happens, that brings assurance of salvation. The third foundation is the present spirit of Christ in your life. Am I listening to the spirit in God's word? John talks about how God has given us his spirit. God's spirit speaks to us through his word. And so the question is, am I listening Am I being attentive to it? The second question is, am I being led by the Spirit in my walk? Listen, the Spirit is leading us in our walk. And as we walk in step with God's Spirit and in step with God's Word, the assurance of our salvation just grows and grows and grows. However, if you neglect the Spirit, if you grieve the Spirit, if you go and do things your own way, live your own life, and disregard the things of God and the Word of God, then you undercut the very assurance that God wants you to have. I'll say it again. The greatest thing in all the world is to have eternal life. And the second is to know for sure that you have eternal life. So here's the bottom line question. Are you saved and you know it? Because here's the deal. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely Show it. Your life will show the evidences of salvation. The truth of Christ, the work of Christ, and the Spirit of Christ will be present in everyone who has eternal life in Christ. Are you saved and you know it? Then your life will surely what? Show it. The question is, is your life showing it? What is your life showing? My prayer for you is that you will allow the Word of God in 1 John to reflect, to be a mirror of what your life is showing. Because that is the only authority that matters. is what God says about you. You say, well, how do I know what God says? It's in His written Word. We have it in the book of 1 John. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we are so grateful. My, we are humbled by your grace and your mercy that would provide a way of salvation so that we can have eternal life. And that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, I, my fear is that there are many of us who don't have that assurance, and we live with doubts and questions, and, and so we're paralyzed so much in our Christian faith. Lord, I pray that throughout the summer months, you will use your word to convict us, to challenge us, and to bring assurance to those who are truly believers in you, but also at the same time to awaken the spiritual condition of those who are not true believers. And Lord, then you would grant them faith, open their heart, open their eyes to see their need 
for Jesus Christ so that they would come to saving faith. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.